Welcome to Disability News. Your reader today is Anne Marie. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. The material presented in this program is provided for the listener's interest and information and is not intended for diagnosis or treatment of individuals. Please see your doctor or health care provider for that and any other health-related concerns you may have. We'll read from a variety of articles and sources as time allows, starting with the Mayo Clinic. This is an overview of dyslexia. It's a learning disorder that involves difficulty reading due to problems identifying speech sounds and learning how they relate to letters and words, decoding. Also called a reading disability, dyslexia is a result of individual differences in areas of the brain that process language. Dyslexia is not due to problems with intelligence, hearing, or vision. Most children with dyslexia can succeed in school with tutoring or a specialized education program. Emotional support also plays an important role. Though there is no cure for dyslexia, early assessment and intervention result in the best outcome. Sometimes dyslexia goes undiagnosed for years and isn't recognized until adulthood, but it's never too late to seek help. Symptoms. Signs of dyslexia can be difficult to recognize before your child enters school, but some early clues may indicate a problem. Once your child reaches school age, your child's teacher may be the first to notice a problem. Severity varies, but the condition often becomes apparent as a child starts learning to read. Before school, signs that a young child may be at risk of dyslexia include late talking, learning new words slowly, problems forming words correctly such as reversing sounds in words or confusing words that sound alike, problems remembering or naming letters, numbers, and colors, Difficulty learning nursery rhymes or playing rhyming games. School age. Once your child is in school, dyslexia symptoms may become more apparent, including reading well below the expected level for age, problems processing and understanding what is heard, difficulty finding the right word or forming answers to questions, problems remembering the sequence of things, Difficulty seeing and occasionally hearing similarities and differences in letters and words. Inability to sound out the pronunciation of an unfamiliar word. Difficulty spelling. Spending an unusually long time completing tasks that involve reading or writing. Avoiding activities that involve reading. Teens and adults. Dyslexia signs in teens and adults are a lot like those in children. Some common dyslexia symptoms in teens and adults include difficult reading, including reading aloud, slow and labor-intensive reading and writing, problems spelling, avoiding activities that involve reading, mispronouncing names or words or problems retrieving words, spending an unusually long time completing tasks that involve reading or writing, difficulty summarizing a story, trouble learning with a foreign language, difficulty doing math word problems. When to see a doctor? Though most children are ready to learn reading by kindergarten or first grade, children with dyslexia often have trouble learning to read by that time. Talk with your health care provider if your child's dyslexia level is below what's expected for your child's age or if you notice other signs of dyslexia. 
When dyslexia goes undiagnosed and untreated, childhood reading difficulties continue into adulthood. Strength training for people with disabilities. Aided by medical and surgical advances, new developments in adaptive equipment and the Americans with Disabilities Act, ADA, mandates, the number of people with disabilities now engaging in organized physical activities and competitive sports within the U.S. is rising. According to Mayo Clinic physiatrist Edward R. Leskowski, MD, today's competitive athletes with disabilities are performing at a very high level and have reached some impressive milestones. Dr. Leskowski is the former co-director of sports medicine at Mayo Clinic campus in Rochester, Minnesota, and has served as a member of the President's Council on Physical Fitness, Sports, and Nutrition under Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama. Dr. Laskowski has authored peer-reviewed journal articles on strength training and conditioning in athletes with disability, and his 1992 publication in the American Journal of Sports Medicine on Snow Skiing Injuries in the Physically Disabled Population provided the impetus and data that enabled many ski areas to open their doors to adaptive skiing. Becoming an elite competitive athlete may not be the realistic goal for every patient, but Dr. Laskowski notes that there's a large body of research demonstrating that individuals with disabilities who engage in some form of regular physical activity can experience significant and lasting positive impact on their cardiovascular, musculoskeletal, and psychosocial health. Key considerations when designing a strength program for patients with disabilities. Engaging in some form of strength training can help patients develop the strength and coordination needed for new activity and it can help improve performance and prevent injuries in patients who are already engaged in some form of activity or sport. There are a few categories of patients for whom strength training may not be appropriate. People who have severe muscular dystrophy or those with active inflammatory myopathies, severe spasticity or severe coordination or strength deficits may not be able to engage in typical strength training exercises, explains Dr. Laskowski. For many other types of disabilities, however, the benefits associated with strength training are well documented. Most individuals with neuromuscular disease, for instance, can benefit from engaging in some form of strength training, says Dr. Laskowski. A basic strength program typically begins with developing muscle endurance through low weight and higher repetitions. Optimal form and technique are paramount to ensure maximum benefit and protection from injury. A single set of strength exercise performed muscle fatigue can provide almost all the same benefits as multiple sets. Dr. Laskowski offers these basic guidelines and suggestions to help keep patients with disabilities safe when engaging in strength training. Ensure that spasticity and primitive reflex patterns do not interfere with exercise performance. In patients with spasticity, Dr. Laskowski explains that the patient should work on strengthening antagonist muscle groups, the muscle groups that oppose the muscles responsible for spasticity. Strive for balance in muscle groups. Creating a program that helps patients work toward achieving muscle balance 
can also help address overuse and injuries to muscles that stem from a lack of balance. Individuals who use a wheelchair should strive for strength in the posterior shoulder and scapular stabilizer groups with the goal of producing a balanced shoulder force couple to protect the rotator cuff. Focus on proper positioning, using straps as needed, proper technique, as well as balanced, stable, and secure positioning are critical, says Dr. Laskowski. Poor alignment can increase muscle tone and trigger primitive reflexes, particularly for patients with cerebral palsy or traumatic brain injury or for those recovering from a stroke. Patients with cerebral palsy should attempt to maintain neutral head position and prevent neck flexion. Straps can also help patients, including those with spasticity, maintain stable posture and limit, limit maladaptive response patterns. An elastic binder or chest strap can help patients maintain trunk stability and diminish the stimulus for ex extensor spasm response. Below knee strapping can help with adductor spasticity. Patients who use straps during strength training should be monitored closely for skin breakdown. Use wraparound weights and other adaptive equipment. Weights can be wrapped around limbs and secured with fabric closures can be effective, particularly for amputees or patients with poor distal extremity, especially hand function. Patients can also use manual resistance and tubing that allows them to exercise in multiple planes and diagonal spiral patterns. Incorporate stretching for spasticity reduction and injury prophylaxis because suboptimal flexibility can hinder positioning and increase the risk of pressure sores. Performing stretching exercises is important. It can help with spasticity reduction and injury prophylaxis, says Dr. Laskowski. Keep in mind that some patients with disabilities may need assistance to perform stretches. Special considerations for patients with spinal injuries. When developing strength programs for patients with spinal cord injuries, Dr. Laskowski says there are additional adaptations that providers can consider some patients may need assistance with transfers and positioning on equipment, and some may require a spotter when using free weights. Correct positioning with straps if needed is key with the goal of avoiding shear to the skin. Protecting insensate skin from pressure and cold temperatures are other priorities to keep in mind. Patients with spinal cord injuries should avoid the Valsalva maneuver or breath holding as these can affect blood pressure adversely and may cause incontinence. If their injuries are above T6, they should also be monitored closely for autonomic dysreflexia. Because they can be porthothermia, patients with spinal cord injuries may also need to have the room temperature adjusted using fans or air conditioning. Prescribing exercise for children with disabilities, unique considerations and precautions. The rise in obesity among all children has been associated with increases in health conditions previously seen only in adults, including hypertension, type 2 diabetes, mellitus, and unhealthy lipid profiles. Overall, individuals with childhood onset disabilities are at increased risk 
of earlier onset age-related health changes. In children with neuromuscular conditions, for example, a sedentary lifestyle can lead to earlier onset of cardiovascular, metabolic, and musculoskeletal issues. Multiple studies have also shown that adults with cerebral palsy have higher rates of chronic medical conditions such as coronary artery disease, diabetes, joint pain, and hypertension that do age-matched peers without cerebral palsy. As providers grapple with how to address these trends, it's important to remember that many children with disabilities can safely participate in regular physical activity and derive the same psychological and physiological benefits that children without disabilities experience, including maintaining a healthy weight and cardiovascular fitness into adulthood. In a review article published in Current Physical, Medical, and Rehabilitation Reports in 2019, lead author Sherilyn W. Driscoll, M.D., and co-authors discussed the important role that exercise can play in the overall health and fitness of children with disabilities, and they provide an updated overview of disability-specific exercise recommendations and precautions for providers to consider Dr. Driscoll is a pediatric physiatrist at Mayo's Clinic's campus in Rochester, Minnesota, who directs Mayo Clinic Children's Center Pediatric Rehabilitation Division and serves as the medical director for the Pediatric Rehabilitation Inpatient Unit. We know that exercise is truly good for everybody, says Dr. Driscoll, but we also need to acknowledge that children with disabling conditions who are also susceptible to the obesity epidemic are even less likely to participate in structured or recreational physical activities than their typically developing peers. So, discussions about activities and exercise are an essential part of any evaluation care plan we develop for these children. Individualized Exercise Recommendation for Children and Adolescents Dr. Driscoll and co-authors acknowledge that multiple personnel and environmental barriers to participation exist, including fear, lack of motivation, perceived negative attitudes towards disability, lack of transportation, availability of appropriate facilities or programs, and cost. In addition to these barriers to participation, children and adolescents with disabilities experience a wide range of functional disabilities and medical concerns. Consequently, providers must individualize exercise and activity recommendations to each patient. The goal for children who are able is to follow the guidelines for children, adolescents, outlined in the Physical Activity Guidelines for Americans, released by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. These guidelines include 60 minutes or more of physical activity a day, with three days a week of activity performed at a vigorous level, and three days a week of strengthening activities. Conclusions? Overall, Dr. Driscoll and colleagues emphasize that the benefits associated with physical activity and the health risks associated with sedentary behavior in this population are significant. Although some individuals will require special precautions for safety or adaptations to permit participation, 
Physical activity and exercise have been proved to be safe and effective for most children and adolescents with disabilities, says Dr. Driscoll. Dr. Driscoll and co-authors are hopeful that future research will expand and update activity guidelines for specific diagnosis and offer additional guidance about how best to engage children and adolescents with disabilities in these activities. Aviation Disability Evaluations, Aerospace Medicine. Pilots occasionally encounter medical conditions that may temporarily or permanently be disabling. Flight physicians at Mayo Clinic perform forensic assessments of pilots who have physical impairments through referrals from major aviation disability insurance administrators, corporate flight departments, and commercial airlines. Physicians confirm accurate diagnosis, establish the presence or absence of maximal medical improvement, and make recommendations regarding treatment and disposition. Special considerations for people with physical disabilities during COVID-19 pandemic. People with physical disabilities such as spinal cord injury, dysfunction, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, multiple sclerosis, cerebral palsy, and stroke may be at a greater risk of severe illness and pneumonia if they develop COVID-19. For example, people with MS may be taking medications that can cause immunosuppression. People with SCID and ALS may have underlying respiratory disease or limitations due to weakened diaphragm and chest and abdominal muscles impairing their ability to remove lung secretions by coughing. Also, temperature dysregulation can prevent a, fe a febrile response. A typical presentation may occur in this population with hypoxia and dyspia as the key symptoms of COVID-19 due to a person's difficulty in mounting a febrile response and difficulty coughing. Therefore, early testing for COVID-19 is suggested to avoid delay of diagnosis and treatment. Lisa A. Beck, APRN, CNS and MS, and Kristen L. Garlanger, DO, both with physical, medical, and rehabilitation at Mayo Clinic suggest that people with physical disabilities should be proactive to prevent illness. Here are some ways to do that. Stay hydrated to keep lung secretions thin. Eat a healthy, well-balanced diet to boost the immune system. Perform deep breathing and coughing exercises, which are controlled coughing maneuvers that help clear lungs. Change positions frequently using gravity to help clear lungs. Additional considerations for wheelchair use, caregiver plans, and respiratory devices should be considered for people with physical disabilities. Wheelchair users. People who use wheelchairs face increased risk of exposure to COVID-19. Their heads are lower than those of people who are standing, so they be, may be more vulnerable to respiratory droplets produced when an infected person coughs, sneezes, or talks because the droplets drop. Wheelchair users should consider these tips. Keep at least six feet away from others when possible. Wash your face in addition to your hands after being in public and after having in-person conversation. Use an antibacterial solution to clean high-touch surfaces such as wheels, brakes, and push rims of a manual wheelchair throughout the day. 
or a power wheelchair, use an antibacterial solution to clean the joystick and other controls, armrests, tray, or any parts your hands touch. If you use other assistive devices such as walkers or canes, be sure to regularly wipe those with antibacterial products too. People with caregivers. People with caregivers should consider these tips. Ask caregivers to wear masks when they enter and work with you in your home. Have caregivers wash their hands when they arrive and each time before touching you. Ask caregivers to be vigilant about not touching their faces or yours. Have caregivers check their temperature before arrival. Ask caregivers not to come to your house if they are not well, including if they have symptoms such as a cough or temperature of 100.4 Fahrenheit or higher, or if they have a known exposure to someone who is sick. Plan ahead to find someone who can help you or your, or your pets if your caregiver gets sick and isn't available to assist you. If your usual caregiver is unavailable, plan on backup caregivers and prepare anyone you may need to rely on an emergency. Ensure you can get assistance if a caregiver does not show up. Identify people to assist with groceries or have meals delivered to your home. Identify a way to get medications and other supplies in a timely manner. Remember, pets needs too. Ensure plenty of food is on hand and arrange a backup caregiver for your service animal or pet. Users of ventilators or other respiratory assisted, assistive devices. Some people with disabilities rely on ventilators every day. Making sure caregivers follow strict guidelines to clean and use these machines will help protect those who are valuable to respiratory illnesses. Users of ventilators or other respiratory assistive devices should consider these tips. Clean and disinfect medical equipment according to the manufacturer's instruction. Change filters as suggested by the manufacturer's instructions. Wash hands before and after working with the ventilator or person. Make sure caregivers wear masks or eye shields if they are suctioning secretions. When seeking medical care, if a person becomes sick and needs medical attention, the person or caregiver should mention to the medical providers or emergency responders that a person has a disability and share how the disability affects the person's respiratory system. About clinical studies, at Mayo Clinic, the needs of the patients come first. Part of this commitment involves conducting medical research with the goal of helping patients live longer, healthier lives. Through clinical studies which involve people who volunteer to participate in them, researchers can better understand how to diagnose, treat, and prevent diseases or conditions. Types of clinical studies, observational study, a type of study in which people are observed or certain outcomes are measured. No attempt is made by the researcher to affect the outcome. For example, no treatment is given by the researcher. Clinical trial. Interventional study. During clinical trials, researchers learn if a new test or treatment work, works and is safe. Treatment studies in clinical trials might be new drugs or new combination of drugs, new surgical procedures or devices, or new ways to use existing treatments. Find out more about the five phases of non-cancer clinical trials on clinicaltrials.gov. Medical Research Records 
medical research records involves the use of information collected from medical records by studying the medical records of large groups of people over long periods of time. Researchers can see how diseases progress, which treatments and surgeries work best. Clinical studies may differ from standard medical care. A healthcare provider diagnoses and treats existing illnesses or conditions based on current clinical practice guidelines and available approved treatments. But researchers are constantly looking for new and better ways to prevent and treat disease. In their laboratories, they explore ideas and test hypotheses through discovery science. Some of these ideas move into formal clinical trials. During clinical trial studies, researchers formally and scientifically gather new knowledge and possibly translate these findings into improved patient care. This concludes the Health Corner for today. Your reader has been Anne Marie. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions concerning this program, please call us in our Lexington studios at 859-422-6390. And now please stay tuned to Radio I for local news in your broadcast area. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a great day. Welcome to Women's Health Corner for Radio I. As a reminder, Radio I is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. The health material presented in this program is provided for your interest and information. It is not intended for the diagnosis or treatment of individuals. Please see your doctor or health care provider for that and any other health-related concerns you may have. Your reader is Mary. Today I'll be reading various articles from different publications. I'll begin reading from the Women's Health Advisor Newsletter, published by Weill Cornell Medicine, Iris Cantor Women's Health Center. This issue is dated October 2022. The first is the article on the front page from the Editor-in-Chief, Fighting Cancer Starts with Screening. Most people are more worried about cancer than any other disease, in spite of the fact that cardiovascular disease remains the top cause of death in the United States. However, the fear of a cancer diagnosis often means that people avoid getting the recommended cancer screenings. Lung cancer is a perfect example. We don't have the ideal screening test yet, but yearly low-dose CT scans are appropriate for high-risk individuals, including smokers, those with occupational exposures to chemicals and toxins, and people who have family histories. If lung cancer is detected, patients now have a better chance of survival due to treatment advances that have been made. Of course, no one wants a diagnosis of lung cancer or any other type of cancer, but once it's found, you can fight it. The problem with many screening tests is the sensitivity to specificity ratio. Will the test produce too many false positives in people who don't have the disease? And how precise is the test in identifying disease that does exist? A good example is mammography for breast cancer. 
it has a miss rate a false negative of about 10% in women of average risk of breast cancer. On the other hand, false positives can occur. This is when areas that are not cancerous look abnormal on a mammography. Any suspicion of cancer means that follow-up tests, which may include additional screening and or a biopsy, will be needed. But that is the price we pay for finding the curable early cancers. Colonoscopy is better as a screening test. It doesn't produce false positives, and the possibility of false negatives depends on the skill of the doctor performing the colonoscopy. But since polyps, precancerous growths, take years to develop into cancers, having a colonoscopy every 10 years or more often, if you're at high risk, will usually detect cancer in time to remove it before it does any significant damage. While there is no perfect test to detect all cancers, screening that results in a cancer diagnosis is better than not knowing you have cancer until it's too late to cure it. Get screened for breast, cervical, skin, and colon, and lung if you are at risk, cancers, to ensure you are doing all you can to help yourself beat cancer. And now the featured article on page one of this issue, More Medication Options for Treating Breast Cancer. Some drugs initially approved for treating advanced stage cancer are now being used for early stage cancers too. Over the past 15 years, there's been a steady decline among women ages 50 and older in deaths from cancer but it's still the second leading cause of cancer death in women, according to the American Cancer Society. Lung cancer is the top cause of cancer death among women. Fortunately, the number of medications used for breast cancer continues to grow, and the types of cancers they treat are expanding too. More options for early stage cancer. The most notable advances in the last few years are the development and incorporation of more targeted agents and immunotherapy in the treatment of patients with high-risk, early-stage breast cancer. Recent clinical trials show that some of the anti-cancer drugs that were initially approved for use in metastatic breast cancer also can be beneficial in early breast cancer leading to reduction in breast cancer recurrence risk, says Evelyn Taiwo, MD, an assistant professor of clinical medicine at Weill Cornell Medicine. In this next section, I'm going to read the brand names only of these medicines. For example, Linparza, an oral anti-cancer drug that was initially used in patients with BRCA mutations and metastatic advanced stage breast cancer has now been approved for use in some patients with early stage breast cancer. Another oral anti-cancer drug, Verzinio, also has been <clears throat> approved for use in some patients with early stage hormone receptor positive breast cancer, while the immunotherapy drug, Keytruda, which was initially approved for use in metastatic triple negative breast cancer is now being used in early stage disease in this breast tumor type 
that is often difficult to treat. The ability to identify and then escalate treatment in patients with high-risk disease instead of waiting for metastasis to develop or to de-escalate treatment in appropriate patients are notable advances. Also notable is the fact that these new treatments are not chemotherapy drugs. They have different and oftentimes more tolerable side effects than traditional chemotherapy, explains Dr. Twill. Other treatments combine two types of drugs to specifically target cancer cells. Antibody drug conjugates, such as Trodel-V and Enhertu, are composed of antibodies and chemotherapy. These antibodies target proteins on the surface of cancer cells, thereby allowing the chemotherapy to be delivered directly into the cancer cell. The ability to target only the cancer cells can induce better response with less side effects and toxicity, notes Dr. Toro. An individualized approach. A wider selection of treatment options also makes it possible to make more personalized choices. In recent years, breast cancer treatment has become much more individualized. Instead of treating everyone with chemotherapy or with radiation or with a certain drug, we have become much better at selecting the best treatment for each specific patient. Many factors are considered when developing a treatment plan with each patient, including her family history, age, and medical history, says Ann Moore, MD, a medical oncologist at the Weill Cornell Breast Center. And Dr. Tao notes that the progress made in molecular testing can provide important information that helps determine what is best for each woman. Diagnostic advances, such as next-generation sequencing, allow us to test cancer tumor DNA in individual patients, identify mutations in the tumors, and, if present, personalize treatment in these patients, says Dr. Tao. Dealing with Challenges A diagnosis of cancer is a life-altering event. Along with the possibility of side effects, a woman has to cope with the diagnosis and prognosis, as well as the toll it takes on her mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being. But there are strategies and approaches that can help make the journey through cancer treatment less taxing. Dr. Tao says that many of the known side effects of cancer treatments, such as nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, or constipation, can be managed prophylactically with medications, and making healthy lifestyle choices can also have positive effects. Studies have shown that patients who are engaged in some form of physical exercise, yoga, meditation, and or are following a prudent diet, plenty of whole foods, including fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, and other plant-based proteins, and seafood, and limited processed foods, especially those high in added sugar and white flour, report better quality of life while undergoing treatment, says Dr. Tao. Dr. Tao urges patients to access services from support groups, 
therapy programs, counselors, social workers, and or psychiatrists who specialize in treating patients with an oncologic diagnosis. These programs and providers are often necessary to get patients through the often difficult and emotional aspects of cancer diagnosis and the treatment needed to manage the disease, she says. Mammograms are a must. Finally, make sure you are up to date with your mammograms. If you stopped receiving cancer screenings during the COVID pandemic, it's time to schedule an appointment. If you are still concerned about COVID, call the screening site and ask what safety protocols they follow. If you're not comfortable with their response, find another location. The most important reason for having mammograms every one or two years is that earlier detection results in better treatment outcomes, including a much higher survival rate. In addition, treatment for cancer detected in the early stages is likely to be less invasive. Mammography is the single best test for screening. However, additional screening with magnetic resonance imaging, MRI, is appropriate for women who are at high risk of breast cancer. Women with extremely dense breasts and women with a BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene mutation are common candidates for MRI screening, explains Dr. Moore. While the possibility of getting a positive result on a mammogram can be scary, the benefits of early detection and treatment are undeniable. What you should know. More mammograms are needed. Overall, more women got mammograms in 1999 and 2000 than they did in 2018, the most recent year for which data are available from the National Center for Health Statistics. In 2018, just 66.7% of women ages 40 and older had a mammogram in the prior two years and just 68.5% of women ages 50 and older had gotten one. Health insurance appears to be a major factor. Among women ages 40 to 64, 71.1% of women who had health insurance had gotten a mammogram, compared with just 37.5% of uninsured women. But money clearly isn't the only factor. Among women at the highest income level, 24.6% had not had a mammogram in the previous two years. I'm going to change now and read from Prevention Magazine, this issue dated October 2022. Exercise smarter, literally. A fascinating new hypothesis on the brain-body connection says that we may actually have evolved to need a certain kind of exercise. Here's what it could mean for your next workout. Written by Laura Shin. In all the times you've been told that exercise is good for your body and mind, have you ever wondered why that is? What exactly is the relationship between your power walk and your brain power? Researchers have some fascinating new ideas about that, and they have to do with early humanity. Very early. 
Around 2 million years ago, humans adopted a hunting and gathering lifestyle, which led to increased aerobic physical activity, explains Dr. Rachelin, Ph.D., a human and evolutionary biology professor at the University of Southern California. Hunting animals and foraging for plant foods required a combination of spatial navigation, memory, motor control, and executive function. As a result, our bodies and brains might have evolved to require exercise. We know that cardiovascular and skeletal systems tend to atrophy without the healthy stress of use. And the same thing may be happening to the modern brain, suggests Rachelin and his colleague Jean Alexander, Ph.D., of the University of Arizona. Exercise may increase neuron growth, particularly if the brain is involved in the physical activity, says Rachelin. A true mind-body workout. There's a name for the kind of exercise that benefits the brain. Dual task training or neuromotor exercise, explains Ryan Glott, a brain-based certified personal trainer at the Pacific Brain Health Center in Santa Monica, California. Glott, who holds a master's degree in applied neuroscience, runs group and private sessions for older adults with cognitive concerns, using virtual reality and active video games, exer games. The idea is that by actively engaging the brain while you exercise, you could improve certain aspects of brain activity more than you would with a less cognitively demanding workout. Exactly how specific exercises might influence particular outcomes or brain regions is still being studied by Rachelin and other researchers, including K. Anderson Hanley, Ph.D., co-director of the neuroscience program in the psychology department at Union College in Schenectady, New York. For example, study participants might utilize specific cognitive skills while navigating and pedaling a bike to test cognitive motor connections. Exercise isn't some magic bullet for the brain. Sleep and diet play important roles, of course. And merely thinking while exercising isn't quite the ticket either. A game-based distraction might lead to slower movement and a less productive fitness session, for instance. So the key may be to sync up activities and mental stimulation, much as our ancestors did. You could add spatial navigation by altering your routes, or try activities that incorporate multitasking, following along in aerobics class, focus, playing tennis, decision-making or strategy, soccer, or navigating terrain, following a map. Our motto is, if you love your brain, then move it and use it, Anderson Hanley says. Here are a few more ideas that might suit you. If you like running, add some focus. Humans evolved to run long distances for long periods while processing complex information. Runners who ran for at least 16 minutes and focused on stepping on poker chips 
improved their working memory by 20%, says University of North Florida psychology professor Tracy Packham Alloway, Ph.D., author of the recent book, Think Like a Girl. Working memory matters a lot, she says, as your brain constantly uses it to extract and adapt information. Surprisingly, a runner's pace didn't impact the outcome. To apply this to your jog or sprint, Alloway suggests purposefully aiming for where your feet land, such as jumping over or onto cracks. Your mom's back will be fine. If you like games, try virtual exercise. If you find yourself at an arcade, tear away yourself from more sedentary games and jump aboard a light-up stage for Dance Dance Revolution, keeping up with coordinated moves on the screen, Glatt suggests. At the gym and at home, cognitively demanding options include aerobic exercise machines with attention-grabbing digital displays, as well as consumer-grade virtual reality, VR, and exergaming products. It's less stressful than watching CNN, and you'll spill more sweat than you would with sedentary brain games. You might still be able to exergame with an old-school Nintendo Wii, but more virtual reality options are coming on the market. Holodia, Supernatural, and FitXR are offer, offer workouts for use with VR headsets. For example, Helodia offers a subscription-based game for use with a VR headset as well as stationary bicycles, ellipticals, and rowing machines. If you like dancing, add a partner or a pattern. While swaying at home is fine, learning choreographed steps or interacting with a partner adds new cognitive challenges. Multiple studies have shown that these types of dance benefit brain function, even in those already experiencing cognitive impairment, and they may reduce the risk of dementia in Alzheimer's disease. Dance is one of the best interactive forms of exercise out there, says Anderson Hanley. Going out and being an active participant in the world is good for staving off dementia. If you love taking a kid to the playground, try the equipment. Alloway found in a study that working memory improved among those engaged in attention-focused, dynamic, complex muscle and joint movements, much like those you might do on a playground. As long as you feel capable of it, she suggests walking the balance beam, swaying on the monkey bars, or slipping down a slide movements that kids like but adults tend to find challenging. As adults, we often forget skills around awareness of a body position constantly moving through a space, she says. That's something all of us could enjoy a bit more often, so go ahead and give your gray matter a push. And next in the question and answer section, question, what are triglycerides? And how are they related to heart health? Answer. Triglycerides are a form of lipids, fats, in the blood. Other blood lipids are LDL and HDL cholesterol. 
Research suggests that elevated triglyceride levels may contribute to atherosclerosis, which narrows arteries and increases risks of coronary artery disease, heart attack, and stroke. Triglycerides store unused calories, which are then released by hormones when your body needs energy. Triglycerides are stored in the abdominal fat located behind the muscles and around the internal organs in your abdominal area. This type of fat is associated with increased cardiovascular risk. High triglyceride levels are closely associated with diabetes and insulin resistance. Very high triglyceride levels may also result in acute pancreatitis, an inflammatory condition of the pancreas that can cause serious complications and may be fatal if it's not diagnosed and treated in a timely manner. Triglyceride levels are measured by a blood test called the serum lipid profile. This test also provides measures of the different types of cholesterol. Like LDL cholesterol, the lower the triglycerides, the better. Normal is a level less than 150 milligrams per deciliter. Borderline high, high, and very high triglycerides are levels of 150 to 199, 200 to 499, and greater than 500 milligrams per deciliter, respectively. Your triglyceride level is most affected by the foods and beverages you consume. Items that raise triglyceride levels include sugar-sweetened beverages, cakes, cookies, candy, and other processed foods high in added sugar, and foods that are high in carbohydrates, such as pasta, bread, and rice. And drinking alcohol can raise your triglyceride level. In fact, binge drinking, consuming four or five alcoholic drinks in a period of about two hours, can cause your triglyceride level to spike. Other factors that contribute to higher triglycerides include being overweight or obese, having poorly controlled diabetes, and getting little or no exercise. You are also more likely to have high triglycerides if you have a family history of it. For some people, high triglycerides are primarily due to a genetic component. The next question. What is early onset dementia? Is it characterized by any particular symptoms? Answer. The term early onset refers to the age when dementia begins. Dementia that occurs prior to age 65 is referred to as early onset dementia. Symptoms may begin showing up in a person early 60s, 50s, or even 40s. In the case of Alzheimer's disease, AD, the most prevalent type of dementia, symptoms are similar regardless of the age of onset. AD symptoms include memory loss that disrupts daily life, difficulty in completing familiar tasks, misplacing items and being unable to retrace steps to locate them, and decreased or poor judgment, among others. Don't be alarmed if you notice occasional memory lapses 
or if you feel that your brain isn't working as well as it did when you were younger. These are common complaints among postmenopausal women, and they may be associated with changing levels of estrogen and other hormones. In addition, a variety of factors can influence your brain function. For example, poor sleep, chronic pain, depression, vitamin deficiencies, and some medications can cause problems with memory, thinking, and concentration. If you are concerned about changes in your cognitive function, report it to your primary care physician who can check for hormone imbalances, nutritional deficiencies, and other factors that might be affecting you. If your doctor thinks further evaluation is needed, he or she may refer you to a memory disorders specialist, such as a neurologist or a neuropsychologist, for evaluation. And next, back to the Prevention Magazine. Jump your way fit. Trend alert. There's a fun new workout on the scene that barely feels like exercise. The trampoline workout. Here's what you need to know to jump right in. Body benefits. Jumping on a trampoline is low impact, so it's kind to your bones and joints. It also boosts fitness and cardiovascular endurance and relieves stress. An extra plus. It's different from your usual routine, so it's exciting. A check mark on the motivation list. What to do? Choose exercises you can do in 30, 45, or 60 second intervals with equal rest periods, for instance. Where to jump? If your kids or grandkids have a big backyard trampoline, you call dibs. Look for exercise, fitness, or rebounder trampolines to buy online. They're small enough to fit in the house or the garage, or bounce your way to your local trampoline park. This concludes the Women's Health Corner for today. Your reader has been Mary. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions concerning this program, please call us in our Lexington studios at 859-422-6390. And now, please stay tuned to Radio I for the continuation of our local broadcast. Thank you for listening, and have a healthy and happy day.